Well, good morning. Happy post-Easter. It's good to be with everybody. I hope and trust that everybody had a, a wonderful Easter. We certainly had a, a great day in the Lord's house here last week. Amen? Amen. Uh, last year after Easter, uh, you might recall, if you do, you're sharper than a tack. Um, if you don't, don't feel bad. We, we went for a few weeks through the book of Galatians. Um, we're not going to do that again this year, so don't worry if you're thinking you're tired of that book. Uh, but it's, it's great. One of the things I really like to do, and I'll probably do most of the years, so you can find your pastor to be predictable, when we get post-Easter and Holy Week, it's really great to take some time and to go through one of the epistles together. Right? And so last year we looked at you know, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, we're going to look at some different stuff this year. But the reason that's good is because Paul, uh, when he writes to these, these epistles to these churches, there's a lot of kind of implication language that's used, right? These are churches that sprang up as a result of the resurrection of Jesus, right? He went on these missionary journeys. You can look through the early church in Acts, and you can see how the church kind of exploded and started, and Paul began these upspringing churches in all these different places that he went. And then he writes these letters to them as they kind of are in their initial growing phases. You know, they go through whether it's fast growth or slow growth, they start to go through struggles, they have their strengths and their weaknesses and all these kinds of things. And so each letter in some ways is a little bit the same and in some ways different. But what it gives us is a picture of, look, Jesus came, he, he is risen, you're a church, uh, here's some things I'm seeing that as you do this whole church thing, you could improve and be better and and commits more or less or change uh, the way that you do certain things. Or here's some flaws that I see, some kinks in the hose, so to speak. And so Paul spends a lot of time in these letters kind of training up. Uh, and yes, at sometimes I guess, correcting these churches, right? And so we want to look this week at the book of Ephesians. Now, uh, as I was preparing for this this week, my brother-in-law sent me something entertaining that I thought I might share with you. Uh, it is, I don't know what church this is from, so I can't give credit to it. But it made me chuckle, and I hope it makes you chuckle too. Uh, it is the general Pauline letter outline. This is every letter that Paul writes to any of the churches. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Timothy says hi. Right? And, and you laugh at this, but now go back and read the epistles, and you'll be shocked how many of them. This is a perfect summary of what Paul is essentially trying to say to each of the churches. He's like, what are you doing? Like, this isn't that hard, right? Here's the gospel. Now here's what you do with it. And so this, it's funny, right? But in, in all seriousness, uh, we, we this morning are going to look at, at Ephesians. And, and Paul kind of has this great sense. Each church he writes to is working on how they are supposed to live in light of the gospel, right? Each church that he writes to has its successes and challenges. That sounds familiar to us, right? We all have our successes and challenges. Every church has a strength and a weakness, and we can learn and see for ourselves in each of the church's letters that we look at how we as a church might be able to continue to shape ourselves more and more after Christ. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to look at this book of Ephesians together, and it's a beautiful thing because the six chapters of Ephesians split out really nicely across six different weeks. Um, Ephesians is masterfully written by Paul. It's probably, it's regarded as one of his most well-written epistles. The language of it is just beautiful. The way he approaches things is beautiful. And it divides itself kind of in two ways, as most of Paul's letters do. The first half of Ephesians, and most of his epistles, 
is kind of a recapture of the gospel. Right? He has some introductory things, grace be with you, those kinds of things. Here's the gospel. And then the second half, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are kind of dealing with the, the implications. Like, what should we as a church actually do with this gospel that you've just re-explained to us in a way that makes sense, right? And so this morning, we're going to look very briefly at the opening of Ephesians. Right? Thankfully, we have um, some really wonderful detailed accounts as to how the church in Ephesus kind of launched, right? Uh, if you read all about it in, in Acts chapter 19, and I'm not going to get into the whole uh, weeds of 19 with you right now, but if you go to Acts chapter 19, you can read the entire account of how Paul started the church in Ephesus, right? I'll just give you a brief, brief little recap. So Paul is traveling, he, he gets to Ephesus, he arrives on the scene, and there is a massive kind of monument to Artemis in, in, in Ephesus. Ephesus was this seedy, really economically well-to-do city. It was thriving, been full of commerce and international trade. Everything kind of went in and through Ephesus in some ways. It was a great place economically, but it was a really dark place spiritually, right, when Paul gets there. Um, dark, I mean like dark arts, occult kind of stuff, uh, witchcraft, spells, like the, the, the works, the worst of the worst. And it was home to some of the seediest kind of people. Like Ephesus was like where you, like it was the home of the perverts essentially. It was a mess of a city. So it looked beautiful when you walked up to it, but in this underbelly undertone of the place was just a disgusting mess morally, spiritually, and really in every way. Right? And so Paul comes into this really difficult city to start to do the work of ministry there. And when he gets there, he finds a couple of disciples, and he starts the way he normally does. He goes into the synagogue, and he starts to teach there. And Paul's teaching in the synagogue for like three months or so, and not really getting a whole lot of anywhere right, in this place. And eventually, the, the, kind of the synagogue, they start to rise against him, and he has to shift locations, and he ends up renting space uh, in, in the Hall of Tyrannus. And so you'll see at some point in Acts 19, they shift to the Hall of Tyrannus because he's not really welcome in the synagogue anymore. And so then he's preaching there and he's with his disciples and he keeps teaching and preaching for about two years in Ephesus. Talk about a long-term church plant goal with a slow move. Right? Now, the Lord's doing some really cool stuff as Paul is preaching. One of the things that we see in Acts 19 is that the Lord is gifting Paul with a really intense kind of healing ministry. Right? So Paul is able to, in the name of Jesus, heal people from disease and all kinds of issues. And it's to the point where like, people that touch his cloak or his handkerchief kind of falls and they'll grab that and touch it. And they're healed just by touching the handkerchief of Paul. Not because Paul is great, because the Lord is doing such amount of powerful stuff in him and through him. Right? That he kind of gets this reputation in town for being a healer. We got to go to this Paul guy. He's talking about this Jesus, but man, when people go there, they're, they, you know, so-and-so was blind, but now they see. You, you're hearing that over and over and over again. Right? But yet there's not that explosive of, of a growth that occurs as a result of this kind of church planting effort. Right? You're seeing healing, but it's not really taking off in any of a major way. And then a little later in 19, we're introduced to this kind of weird passage where we meet the sons of Sceva. 
There's a man named Sceva, he had sons. And the sons of Sceva are really impressed with Paul's healing ministry, and they decide that they're going to go do this on their own. And so they, they encounter this man that's possessed with a demon, and they go up to the demon and they say, well, Paul goes around in the name of Jesus and casts out demons. We can do that too. And so they go up to the demon and they say, you know, we cast you out in the name of, the, of, of Paul's Jesus. It's just an interesting kind of phrase. And here's how the, the spirit replies to them. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Um, and then the man in whom was the evil spirit uh, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It doesn't go the way Paul's stuff goes, right? They're like, yeah, we know Paul. We respect him. Like, the demons are afraid of Paul. They're afraid of Jesus, for sure. But really, I have no idea who you are. And we're going to take you out. And, and so one of the things that happens is it becomes really apparent is you can't just use the name of Jesus to heal to make a name for yourself. And so the sons of Sceva fail miserably. And as a result of that failure, what happens is there's this fear, this healthy fear of the Lord that comes over the city of Ephesus. And what you see is these people, these sorcerers, these witchcraft folks, these occult pagans, they start to bring their spell books and all kinds of other materials to Paul and they set them on fire and they're burning them. They're giving up the old ways and forsaking them to jump on Paul and the Jesus train. Right? And it says that the, the, the dollar equivalent, if you want to do the math, of, of the amount of materials and books and value-wise that were burned, if they had sold them instead of burning them, it would be about $200,000 in today's money. Right? But instead, they just cast it aside. And so this, kind of, this church explodes, and the, the Ephesian church is built up as a result of Paul's couple years that he spends there. Uh, and so all of this happens, the church is kind of growing and, and flourishing and doing well in a place where you would never expect it to do well, right? Ephesus is like, like that's where we send the seasoned church planters, because no one else could survive there for more than a couple weeks, right? But Paul has success there ultimately, right? Fast forward a whole bunch of years, the church of Ephesus is going. Paul has completed that missionary journey and, and others, and he's now imprisoned in Rome. And he writes in Rome from prison this letter to the Ephesian church that he started way back in Acts 19. And so we're going to look at the opening of that this morning, uh, just Ephesians 1, and, and see what we can learn about how, how Paul opens his letter to the church that he founded and the church that he loves. And so I want to invite us to stand as we read from God's word together here in Ephesians 1. Let's read together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us all, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Um, the other thing about Paul, other than for the love of God, stop being stupid and Timothy says hi, is that um, if you're an English professor, you really dislike Paul because that, that boy can do run-on run on sentences more than anyone you know. Right? I'm, I think what I just read to you is like two sentences. If you look at the commas and the periods in there, maybe, right? So it's, it's an intense way of writing, but if you looked at Greek and, and how it's written in Greek, it's actually pretty artful. We just don't have a good way of translating it with, with periods, right? It's meant to be this kind of flowing, poetic type of thing. And make no mistake, the first half of Ephesians 1 that we just read is actually a Hebrew poem, the way Paul writes it. He's not just telling a story. He's not just offering a greeting. He's actually writing poetry, right? So Paul begins by recapping the gospel here. He talks about how we are adopted as sons of Christ. And he talks about how this redemption that we have through Christ's blood, because Jesus' actions on Easter, Paul says, our trespasses are covered right, by the Lord. And their sins are washed, and they're together all in this clean state. And so far, it's a pretty basic gospel kind of recap thing. And then he pivots. He says something in verse 9. He says that in Christ's actions, God has made known the mysteries of his will. Right? So in the actions of Jesus, in the life, the ministry, the arrest, the, the, the death and the resurrection, the ascension, and all the things that we saw Jesus do in the Gospels that we celebrated last week, as we watched all of that, in that God is actually making known the mysteries of his will. And that Christ's actions have set this will in motion, so to speak. So like, whatever God wants to see happen, his will for our lives, for the world, for the future, all of that, for the redemptive history, the things that Jesus did that we celebrated on Easter last week, set in motion the wheels for this to happen. Right? For the will of, of God, for the mysterious will of God to come true. And then in verse 10, he gives us that main point. Right? He says, God's plan for the fullness of time is what? To unite all things in him. Both things in heaven and things on earth. Right, so what's, what's the mystery? The mystery is that God's plan is that all things, everything, will be united. Both heaven and earth. So the spiritual realm and the, the physical realm. All of this, all of it. Everything that is, everything that was, everything that will be is going to be somehow united. So Paul here gives us God's ultimate goal and plan and purpose, if you will, right? in this opening of Ephesians 1. It says, Jesus' death and resurrection covers your sin. His life means that you will live eternally, and that's great, and we celebrate salvation all the time, but it's not just about a saved life. It's about what we're saved to. Right? 
And Paul explains that the ultimate goal is everything that exists is united under God. Now, he keeps going and he, he fleshes this out a little more. And in the next verses, the grammar becomes really important. And I'm not talking about Greek grammar. You can actually see this in the English pretty plainly. In verses 11 and 12, Paul uses the word we. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. When he says we, what Paul is talking about is ethnic Jews, the descendants of Abraham, God's chosen and called people, that he called out of Egypt, that he established as a nation, just like he promised Abraham a nation would be established from your offspring as large and numerous as the stars. Right? The Jewish people multiply, they're freed under Moses, and then they're made to be his people. They journey through the desert, they eventually inherit the land. We're talking about the actual ethnic Jews. So unless I'm mistaking, and there's some, some, some Jewish roots happening in this room, at this point in, in 11, he's not talking about you and I. Right? He's saying we. As a good guy raised as a good Jew, Paul is one of them. He was Saul. He was Jewish. And now he's Paul and he's preaching Christ crucified. But he's saying, look, we have this. We were the first hope in Christ. We are this called and chosen people. We have these things. We who were the first hope. It might be to the praise of his glory. And then he pivots in 12, or sorry, in 13. In him, you, not we anymore, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul is a master wordsmith. Everything he says matters. And what Paul is doing here is he's moving from a, a faith for ethnic Jews, the called people of God, to a faith that is for the whole world. Right? So he's speaking in Ephesians to the Jews and then the Gentiles. And he's saying, look, Jews at the time who were the descendants of Abraham in Genesis, you're, you're not anymore the sole God's chosen people. Right? This is now, because of Jesus and the will, this mysterious will, this is now bigger than you. And so for Paul, the primary outworking that we see of the ministry of Jesus Christ is, is unity for the world. Saying, look, before Jesus, this was, it was about God's chosen people. He was working through this specific people group. It was always the Jews, and then there was you know, the, the, the exile of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then the Romans and, and all these other people groups. But now, we're no longer making that distinction because God's plan, guys, all along, is that isn't how it's going to work anymore. Like Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose so that there's no more Jew and Gentile, but there's only those that are under Christ, right? And you have to understand that Ephesus, being the seedy, crazy city that it is, is living in a lot of disunity, right? When Paul is writing to them from prison, the troubles of his early ministry there haven't gone away. The people that started that church that are running it, the elders, those who are faithful, trying to serve the Lord in Ephesus, are still working in a place that is so against them on an everyday basis that it's hard to function in. And when you work in that kind of place, when you function in a world that seems to be against you, what really is easy to start to see happen 
is a church will develop a us versus them mentality. Well, there's us who are holding fast to the faith, and then there's that world that just always is up against us. And we have to fight against them, and we have to battle against them, and every everything's a fight, and everything's a battle, right? And so, it, it kind of the, the church in Ephesus had, in a way, gone inwards. If you recall in Revelation, when God is writing to the the seven churches, what He says about Ephesus is, "Look, you forsook your first love. You're holding fast, and that's great, but but you've forgotten how to love." I get it. You live in a city that is against you, and it's hard. You have a lot of enemies, and everyday life isn't easy, but you have to understand, like, you're supposed to love those people, your enemies. Well, that's not easy. I, no one ever said it was. Right? But, but you have to not forsake your first love. And so what Paul is opening with, is he goes, look, you, you ethnic Jews who think that this is still somehow your little holy huddled faith, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit calls you, Gentiles, all to be a part of this. And by the way, church at Ephesus, the goal of God ultimately is that he unites all things unto himself. And so those people that are your enemies, guess what? Your job is to go and be a part of God's working of uniting them unto himself. And that's how we take this passage and we see it working out in our lives today. Right? We live in a world that increasingly is hostile to the gospel. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's just reality. We can, we can have conspiracy theories about how and just how badly the world is hostile, and there's some differences of opinion, but I don't think anybody can disagree that as the years go on, the world is getting less receptive, less welcoming, less loving, and less caring to Christians around the planet. We're struggling a little bit more in this country than we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I'm not sure the Lord can do whatever he wants. I'm not sure that trend's going to stop anytime soon. I have a feeling we're going to start to pay a little more of a price for being followers of Christ. And what happens is with churches, with our church, with any church, we start to look at it as an us versus them. And we need to guard ourselves against the enemy that's out there. When the reality is, Jesus is saying, no, 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 listen, I, I died and rose to bring God's plan into motion. And that plan is unity. Like, you have to understand, someday you and them are all going to be bowing on your knee together. you you got to get out there and proclaim that to the world. You don't hide from it. You don't cower from it. You don't get just shake your fist angry at it. And, and huddle together to, to encourage one another and never go out into the world, but you're supposed to be a part of this, this motion, this plan that is set in motion for unity to happen. And not just unity for the sake of unity. That's a terrible thing, right? But unity under Christ. So that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Like, the people that you most hate out there are the people that we ought to pray that one day when all of the knees are bowed, and you're on your knees, they're on their knees right next to you. And you're going, thank God you're here. Isn't it wonderful? The Lord, the Lord has brought all things united unto himself, just like he said he would. Paul was on to something. Shocker. Right? That's what we develop through the book of Ephesians. Right? And so Paul 
is saying that because of the gospel, this mentality that we have, this separate mentality, it doesn't really line up with God's plan anymore. We don't get to be our own holy huddle. Jesus came and he died and he rose to unite all things under heaven and under earth. And rather than retreat, we're supposed to carry the love of Jesus into the world everywhere we go. And so Paul concludes chapter 1 by offering a prayer. And when we get to verse 15 for the rest of the chapter, he pivots from this poem, this Hebrew poem, to a prayer that he offers as a prayer of encouragement and thanksgiving to the Ephesian people. And he prays that they would have their their eyes and their hearts enlightened to see this. He prays that they would know the, the hope that God has called them to. He prays that they would know and see that God has immeasurable power, that he's actually able to do the things that he's planning to do. Right? That's why he reminds them of the, the, the insanity of what the gospel actually means. Like it means God isn't just a planner and a schemer, but he's actually powerful enough to pull it off. Right? And he, he says, he prays that they would know and see his immeasurable power so that they can be a part of this uniting that happens under Christ. He goes, guys, this is happening with or without you. I pray that you have eyes to see it. I pray that you have the encouragement and the hope of the Lord to get behind his plan, to get on God's bus here. Because it's going to be biblical. And man, I, I hope that you guys can get out of this mentality of us and them and start to see the kingdom for what it is, the them becoming the us and all uniting under Christ. Right? The eventual kingdom will have every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, and it will be beautiful. And I don't know about you, I often have to fight my pessimism about this world. Right? I'm not generally a pessimistic person, but it's hard not to look at the world we live in and sometimes just wonder how God's going to actually pull it off, isn't it? Like, man, the, the church is just getting so pummeled left and right, and it seems like the morality of the world is just more and more going against what God would want, right? And it's so hard but Paul wants to encourage us not to lose hope. He wants to say that as we continue on, he's going to continue to flesh out in the book of Ephesians what this kind of unity looks like, how God's going to do it. And then when we get to chapter 4, he gives us a picture, a concrete, tangible way that we as God's people can start to usher this in and show the world a microcosm of it so that they might see what a united kingdom of God actually can look like. Right? That's what chapter 4, 5, and 6 are about. You think it's about marriage and children. It isn't. Right? When we get to the weird stuff like wives submit to your husband, it's not, it's not a marriage passage. It's a kingdom of God passage. And we'll dig into why that's the case as we continue on. But for now, just know that Paul is calling us to be a people of unity. He's calling it to the church of Ephesus, and he's calling it to us today. They believed that the letters that Paul wrote to those churches, while they had some specific stuff to each individual church, they really were meant to circulate around. Right? And so just because it was written to Ephesians doesn't mean that we get to ignore it. Like, well, Paul never wrote a letter to Stoprez, so I guess we don't have to do what it says. No. Right? That letter is to us in the same way that it's to them. And so a wise people will heed the counsel of Paul who God has called to preach a message and a gospel of unity. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We're grateful for your death on the cross, and more than that, we're grateful for your resurrection. Because it means new life. 
And it shows us God's plan for this world is not about just saving us from, from the grave, but ushering something new in, something bigger, something greater, something better than any one of us could ask or imagine. And so we pray, Lord, for your kingdom to be on the move. We pray that you would guide us and shape us and mold us into how you want us to help usher that kingdom in. God, we don't want to do things that we want to do. We want to do your work. We want to pray and have your, your Holy Spirit point us in the direction that you want us to go so that we can get on your bus and we can follow along with your plan and go where you're going because that's where we want to be. Help us think that way. Help us be encouraged that way. Help us not to be afraid to let this world in, to love it, to care for it, to witness to it, even when it hates us. Because you know a little bit of something about what that's like. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for your power. We thank you for the day that one day all of us can be united under you. And we don't have to think about these things anymore because we just get to worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.